Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Let's start with the good news today, ladies and gentlemen. Early trials in the search for a vaccine have been a success and there are now hopes that the two groups, one led by the University of Oxford right here in the UK, of course, can press ahead with finding a workable immunisation against the infection of COVID-19. It's still a little bit too early to say that a vaccine can now be made available before the end of the year, but clearly progress is being made more rapidly than anyone had hoped. We'll be getting an expert view later on uh, in the show. On the bad news front, there is talk that the House of Commons could move to York, which surely has to be one of the worst ideas anyone ever had. The last thing we need is the extra cost, the cumbersome transfer of people and offices and the relocation of thousands of workers to another place simply because it is outside London. And it might make a few people happy that not everything is centred in the capital city of this country. What a waste of time and money it would be, especially since it's only a temporary measure while the Palace of Westminster is refurbished. 0344 499 Coming up, we'll find out what went wrong with the appointment of Chris Failing Grayling to be the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee. It was meant to be a formality, but he was beaten to the job by Tory MP Julian Lewis, who's now had the whip taken off him, uh, and he's been kicked out of the Parliamentary Party. It's another unfortunate chapter in the political career of a man who seems to keep landing top jobs, despite being pretty useless at all of them. The Sun on Sunday's David Woody will explain. We'll also be asking media commentator Paul Conyu why the BBC has axed one of its few decent and genuinely unbiased political shows on the TV, The Andrew Neil Show, just to save a bit of money. Really? You couldn't save any money anywhere else in the entire organisation? Plus, we'll be joined by Matt Vickers, MP, who's on a crusade to stop the illegal sale and consumption of laughing gas, otherwise known as nitrous oxide, which has become the second most popular recreational drug, apparently, in the country after cannabis. Most of us, of course, want to hear from you as well. The eyes and ears of the Independent Republic. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what are you doing as well? 0344 499 1000. The government wants everyone to go back to work. The trains are still empty. The shops are still empty. The hotels are still empty. There's no tourism going on. What are we going to do? Uh, are we going to go to the pub? Are we going to go to the restaurants of this country? Uh, are we going to start going to cinemas? Are we going to start going on holiday? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, 
Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very good morning to our old friend, Mr David Wooding, uh, political editor, of course, of The Sun on Sunday. David, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I quite like to kick off with this uh, nonsense about moving Parliament to York because I know it's been sort of added in as an afterthought in this rather unusual letter that's been written by Boris Johnson in which he urges people to have a look at all the possible options. But surely it would be madness to move it out of London, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it strikes me as a gimmick. This was first mooted about a year ago. Mm. But what, what this letter does is, for the first time, a named government source says uh, that, that it's a possibility. Uh, it, it seems to me that the Prime Minister is trying to um, play to those red wall northern seats who were normally, uh, well, before December uh, 2019, were, mm. were Labour voting seats and, uh, and, and swung to the Conservatives behind Boris Johnson to get him elected into power. And he wants to level up, it's the phrase we keep hearing from the Prime Minister, and, and make the North... Uh, and those neglected, as he sees it, uh, areas brought to the fore. But, I mean, why do we have a capital? We have a capital because that's where the seat of government is mm. and all the main headquarters of, of, of the major institutions of the country to move it out of London. And you rightly said a minute ago about all those thousands of jobs. Just think of the cost. It's not just the 650 MPs. No. They employ researchers, secretaries, diary secretaries, who don't travel with them every week from their constituencies in the Outer Hebrides or wherever they are. They're they're people who live in in and around London who've got jobs working in the Commons. Then you've got all the canteen staff, the restaurant staff, the bar staff, the cleaners, the security people. It's it's a village in there. Well, exactly. And you can't just move it lock, stock and barrel up to a place like York where, apart from the fact that there isn't anywhere for anyone to live, you'd have to rent apartments, hotels, what God knows what? Just take me and my family as an example, not that I, I'm at the centre of this story, but if I was to continue being a political correspondent, I would have to move to York, because yeah. I'd be working up, up there all the time, so I'd have to be my whole family up there, and, and that, 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 that story would be echoed for everybody, many of them not, not well-paid people. Uh, throughout the Commons and the, and the right. House of Lords. And also, so, knowing, knowing that it's a temporary measure, albeit that temporary could last as long as maybe 10 years, people aren't going to move lock, stock and barrel for that because they'd have to move back. No. And then what, the, other, the other issue, Mike, is that will the MPs actually vote to move out anyway, to decant, as they say? Mm. Now, there's this £4 billion refurb which is needed. It's going to take several years, five years or so. Um, a lot of MPs don't want to do that. They've battled and fought to get, climb their way up and get elected as an MP. And they want to sit in the Houses of Parliament in that big, magnificent building. They want to be sitting in some um, converted council chamber up in York or no. anywhere else for that matter. Mm. So they might well vote to stay inside the House of Commons and to, um, uh, and to let the work, building work go on around them, which yes. is going to take a lot longer and a lot more time. But... It's not a it's not a given that the MPs will back moving out. I've, I mean, I'm I'm of the impression if you wanted to impress the people that live in those northern constituencies, the best thing you can do is not to move the Houses of Parliament up there because you want to keep them as far away from the real politicians as possible, <laughs> uh, so they don't realise what actually goes on. I mean, they would probably be better off keeping them at a safe distance. But somebody's texted me with a great idea here. Uh, it doesn't give a name, unfortunately. Hi, Mike. I've been thinking about this for weeks. The government needs to take over the Excel Centre for six years. Uh, they were able to do that for the Hospital, why not for the refurbishment? It's not a bad shout. No, that's not a bad idea. There's already a plan, you know, for this Richmond House, which is yes. the, the former Department of Health building. Because mm. that, that looks empty. Is that empty at the moment? Yeah, it's all being refurbed. There's the security around it. I've seen the plans. They've done a little model in the Commons where they, they, they it means that the old Red Lion pub will be 
brought inside a security cordon, so it will have to be closed down for, for the period. Oh, dear. Yeah, that is no, serious news. Part of it. But, but no, that's the, they would recreate the same chamber, virtually looking the same inside right. this building, and the offices would all be moved in there. So that, you know, that, that, that would just involve moving around the corner. Again, they think once they've spent all this money, a lot of MPs think this, once they've spent all this money building a new modern chamber mm. with all the new modern facilities in it, they'll never move back into the commons. Right. And that'll be turned into a museum of some kind. That is the big fear of a lot well, of Well, I suppose so, yeah. I mean, presumably the Lords has to be moved out as well somewhere else. I mean, I suppose there's an argument for saying the Lords could sort of go anywhere in a way because not everybody turns up for that anyway. Yes. I mean, what one, one suggestion be, that was mooted was that you move the Lords out um, uh, first and then re- refurb the whole of the Lords, that side of the building, and then the, the Lords move back in and you move the MPs out or vice versa. Um, so that so that the building is still open, but mm. there's a lot of work needs doing in there. You can see if you just walk past it, all the scaffolding that's around. So on the outside, there's there's bits of masonry falling off all, yes. all the time. So there is a, there is a lot of serious work, and the sewers need redoing, and the, the whole thing. Needs well, all to, the plumbing's all to yeah. cock, isn't it? I mean, yeah. talking of, uh, of of sort of empty buildings, though, I heard an interesting story the other day that lots of buildings in Whitehall right now are sitting empty because most civil servants are still working from home. Now, if the government uh, wants to sort of push the economy forward. Surely the best thing they can do is insist that these um, these uh, civil servants come back to work and sit at their desks. Yes. Um, well, they're trying to lead by example, but then, as we've seen with the masks, um, some people don't actually deliver what they're trying to get the rest of mm. us to do. And, and there's this their message so far on, on stay at home, protect lives. They've got to try and turn that one round right. on its head, and uh, it's going to take some time. I, I was on a train yesterday, and... During the lockdown, when I was going in as a key worker, yeah. um, uh, I was the only person on a carriage. Um, it's gone up to about six now in a carriage. That's what I mean. It's hardly, it's hardly changed. And, yeah, and I don't go yeah. to the West End very often. I don't know whether you do. But, but the fact that all the rest, all the theatres are still shut means that all the restaurants are still shut, most of the shops are still shut. And I think if they started repopulating Whitehall, that might at least get some footfall around Trafalgar Square, you know, up into Covent Garden, that kind of area. And I know this all sounds terribly London-centric. I'm sorry if you're living in York. I apologise. But, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, the government has a great number of employees that they could be insisting come back to work, couldn't they? Yes, and Mike, it's not just a London issue. This, this is this is around our towns and cities across the country. Mm. If we don't get people back into their work, into their workplaces, they won't be buying the sandwiches, using the public transport, right. uh, using the restaurants, the coffee shops, all the things around it that we use and popping out for something at the local pharmacy or whatever. And our city centres and our town centres are going to die. They're, I mean, they'll they'll just be rotten. Mm. Rotten. If you do just look at the city of London, all those wonderful skyscrapers everywhere, modern buildings. Buildings, they're all empty, yeah. and uh, the, the, the only people who are in there are maintenance and security people in right. some cases. Um, so we, we need this is the same everywhere. It's 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 the same in you know Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, yeah. Newcastle. Glasgow, everywhere. You, you've got to get people back into our cities and get things moving again because the, uh, we'll be counting the cost a bit further down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Chris Grayling for a moment because, I mean, even in a situation where supposedly uh, he was a shoo-in for this particular job, the chair uh, of the Intelligence Security Committee, uh, he manages not to get it. Yes. Um, it's quite a well, remarkable story, this, isn't it? It is, but, well, well so uh, there the, are the five... Conservatives on this nine-member committee. Mm. There, there's a couple of uh, Labour, Lib Dem, and I think an SNP on the committee. And uh, Chris Grayling was the choice of uh, of, of the government uh, to be the chairman. 
Now, um, a lot of the MPs had voiced concern, and even Conservatives, saying that um, Chris Grayling had, had, had a bit of a, um, a failed career. It was, it was dubbed as failing Grayling yeah. because of some of the things he, he'd done as a cabinet minister before he left. Um, and they, he was an unpopular choice in, in some quarters. Uh, and what, what appears to have happened is that um, Julian Lewis... Uh, used what, what was being dubbed as duplicity by by, by uh, government sources yeah. in winning over the, um, the the opposition MPs on there. So there's four of them plus voting for himself. That's five. That gives him a majority. So when they voted for the new chairman, uh, he 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 pulled the rug from underneath Chris Grayling's feet, and uh, uh, and has now been as a result of that uh, behaviour, been um, kicked out of the Tory party and yeah. had the whip removed. And I mean, I suppose the uh, the worry from Downing Street's point of view is that there's now a guy in charge of the of the committee or who's the chair of the committee, um, who may take a different view than Chris Grayling of things like this Russian report, uh, or various other reports which may be coming through that committee, other pieces of information about MI5 and MI6. I mean, does Downing Street see Lewis as not one of theirs? Well, that's another danger because, of course, um, when you dance with the devil, as, as one MP said last night, you end up dancing to the devil's tune. So mm. instead of voting... Um, for for uh, a Tory, he's got himself elected with the uh, the SNP and others um, right. who, who want to get rid of nuclear deterrent and don't even believe in security in some cases. Right. So he's he's now going to be a bit of a, a real outcast. Uh, he's been an MP for 23 years. Mm. He was um, his other background is he was he was best man at John Burko's wedding. Oh really? And we all know how uh, popular <laughs> John Burko is within yes. his own party, the former Speaker. So uh, yes, this is. Um, uh, yeah, I, Sir Malcolm Rifkin, the former Conservative Foreign Secretary, was was talking last night and saying that um, he didn't think Chris Grayling was a suitable chair for this committee. Mm. They said they wanted a, a more intellectual giant. Um, however, you know, the, the, the man they've got in there now is one who has openly defied his own government. On yeah. the other hand, he would argue, well, this this committee, the Intelligence and Security Committee, is supposed to be totally independent of government. It's their job to scrutinise. And it's up to the MPs on that committee to elect their own chair. Mm. So um, you can look at this whichever way you want it. Is the government interfering in, in an independent committee or um, has, has, um, has a Conservative uh, MP been behaving disgracefully and against the interests of his own party? Well, presumably if they wish to, the government can kind of sideline the committee so that whatever it is that they do yeah. is less important and less kind of influential anyway. Yeah, it, 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 but but it, it does have. Yeah, the, the, the government can clearly make life very very difficult for Julian Lewis. So this could be um, a long running story with little um, um, spats uh, along the way. So we'll have to keep a careful watch on this. Yes, no, I'm sure I'm sure we will. But I suppose the more troubling aspect for old Chris Grayling is now they're going to have to because obviously he's very popular within the, 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 the corridors of power because he keeps being given some quite decent jobs despite whatever he does with them once he gets them. But I suppose disturbingly for him, given that this was an intelligence committee um, sort of situation, he didn't see that this coup was being formed around him and he didn't see it coming until about 6pm yesterday by which time it was too late. Well, I, I did speak to an MP yesterday who said, uh, I said, oh, is Chris Grayling's going to get this tonight, is he? And, he? and he said, no, no, Chris is himself said, uh, oh, don't, don't count your chickens mm. yet. Because I, I, think, I think he could, um, he caught the whiff of, uh, of something going on but wasn't able to lay his finger on what it was. And then, uh, of course, when he walked into the, uh, into the meeting, I think it was about five o'clock last night, um, suddenly, they, they, instead of, of his name on the ballot paper, there were two conservative names on the ballot paper, him and Dr. Lewis. So all it needed, of course, is uh, if all the opposition people vote, 
for Dr. Lewis and Dr. Lewis wrote for himself, he's in, and that's exactly what happened. Absolutely right. Now, yesterday's um, like Prime Minister's questions was rather more lacklustre than it's been of late. Has, has Keir Starmer sort of lost his bite, as it were? Um, no, I think um, uh, Boris Johnson keeps trying to betray him uh, as the lawyer, mm. and I think... Um, uh, the honourable gentleman doesn't like being called my learned friend. No, and, he does. I imagine uh, he didn't enjoy the more briefs than Calvin Klein uh, quote either. Exactly. <laughs> Which was uh, at least that funny. That's a good gag, that, but I think you then had to explain to people by briefs you meant legal briefs um, and therefore uh, explain the gag. So yeah. it, was, it was quite a good one for those who knew what he was talking about. Yeah, um, Keir is... Uh, I think he's had a rather good start, but... Um, performance at PMQs doesn't really make one uh, a good leader, so he shouldn't be too bothered uh, by having the odd bad day in there any more than the Prime Minister does. I mean, at the end of the day, most it's only anoraks like you and I who sit there and watch the whole half-hour theatre. Most people maybe catch... Uh, a snippet of it on the radio news or, or, or right. on the late TV news, um, if there's anything interesting to report from. Well, what he's also still got to deal with, of course, and the Guardian's got this on the front today, um, a, a deal being offered to whistleblowers inside the Labour Party uh, in a deal to hopefully end any legal action on anti-Semitism, because this is the story that just keeps running and running. Yeah, and how uh, Keir Starmer deals with this will probably define how well he does. Mm. Um, the difficulty is that there is still a rump of uh, extremists in the Labour Party, um, the rank-and-file members. And he's got a few uh, sitting on, on his own benches as well. Um, and he has to deal with this uh, without losing uh, the vast support of the, the broad church within the Labour Party, but at the t- same time trying to steer that um, ship round a little bit. It's very, very similar to what um, Neil Kinnock had in uh, in the 1980s when he inherited a, a hard left Labour Party mm. from Michael Foote and had to try and drag it back. It's got to be small steps, I'm afraid, for him, and it might well be that he's not the next man to be Prime Minister. But who knows, um, four years before the next general election, um, if, if, he, if he continues to build and, and Boris Johnson goes rapidly downhill and uh, and if the economy tanks, uh, who knows what could well, happen. Well, so I mean, if you'd said to me at the beginning of this year, this is where we would be, um, yep. By the time we've reached halfway through it, I would have just laughed at you and gone, what are you talking about? You know, but I mean, it's been a long year so far uh, in politics and, and in everything else, really. And nobody even know, knew that this was all going to be happening in January. No, and Boris Johnson in, in December was coming in thinking, uh, right, I'm, uh, I'm going to be a dad. Um, I'm going to I'm getting married next getting year. Getting out of the EU on the 31st of January. Yeah, I'm going to be defined by the man who led Britain to its complete and utter independence. Yeah. Everyone's forgotten about that now. Everybody's, <laughs> everybody's hiding in their homes away from this uh, um, virus that's killing people. And, uh, and then he, when we survive that, if we all survive it, um, we're then going to face jobs going out the, out, the, out the door. I think there was a report today saying 640,000 jobs have been lost, you know. So yeah. this is going to get worse. The economy is in a bad situation. So... There's a, there's a lot of tough times ahead, and um, that's, that's the, the, the hinterland which this uh, new Prime Minister has inherited. He's only been there six months. I know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's Although sometimes it can be more defining than anything else, you know, and, and there have been politicians in the past who have said, actually, they'd rather be a politician and a political leader in a political crisis and a, and a, and a, sort of, uh, a, na- a national crisis because then you are very much more at the forefront of everybody's support. You're not getting picked off by people who disagree with you. You're actually just stewarding the country through a very difficult period. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 it, and, and 
look, you, you get the job with all these bright ideas of what you want to do to change Britain. And in fact, after five years in, in the job, all you've managed to do is play a defensive action against something that has arisen, which you never expected, but mm. defensive action against coronavirus. And then it'll be against the economy, having spent all that money to try and survive coronavirus. It then has to dig us out of the financial hole that it's left us in. So all these things are beyond his control and how he deals with it will define how good a prime minister he is. But at the end of his first term, he'll, he'll, he'll look up and say, I haven't been able to do any of those great ideas that I came into power wanting mm. to do. He, obviously, he would say, if you asked him, I, I'm trying to do that as well. But uh, it does make life difficult for anybody when you're focusing so many hours of your day on uh, on one very, very big problem that's uh, that's on your desk. Absolutely. David, thanks very much indeed. Look forward to seeing the paper on Sunday. Please close with the sun on Sunday. David Woolley there giving us his view uh, on where we are with a whole bunch of stories this morning. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now though uh, about the big story of the day uh, which seems to be the one uh, which is getting everybody going and it's the uh, major US Twitter accounts hacked uh, in this Bitcoin scam. It's quite a remarkable story and the man we need to talk to about this is our very, very own personal security expert, of course, Will Geddes. Will, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, this is quite a remarkably sort of brazen attack, isn't it? I mean, we've all worried, I suppose, over time that, you know, the online world is never as safe as you want it to be. Um, but this is really audacious and, and they seem to have made some money as well. Yeah, apparently they made about $100,000 in about 10 minutes. The, um, the actual post that was sent out uh, said that there was only a 30-minute window for people to donate $1,000 in Bitcoin, of which they would then, or the sponsor, whether that be Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Kanye West, would double their investment and return it to them. And why so many people, do you think, Will, fell for this? Because, I mean, if I get a message from anybody, which I've fortunately never had, asking for Bitcoin, um, I, the, my first reaction is to immediately just shut it down and go, well, I've deleted that, get rid of it. I'm certainly not going to send them any money. Well, the, 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 the big challenge here is the, the problem with what we call verified accounts, of which you have, Mike, I don't have, uh, where you have a little blue tick next to the name of the user. Now, the whole idea of having verified accounts was that then those individuals would not be mimicked or cloned and duped members of the general public or other users, obviously, of that social media platform. And right. you have this on Instagram, you have it on Twitter. But this has kind of undermined that entire verification process, hasn't it? Well, it really has. And I mean, luckily for me, I mean, you may say I have a blue tick, but I'm not Jeff Bezos, I'm not Bill Gates, I'm not Elon Musk, uh, and I'm certainly not Kanye West. So I'm clearly not quite on the elite level yet to be hacked. Well, I don't know about that, Mike. I, would be, <laughs> I, I don't think any of us are impervious. And uh, the problem with this particular hack is it was uh, relatively easy to, to, to be sort of undertaken. And I think, you know, what we're seeing online, uh, certainly in the underground community of hackers, is that it would appear allegedly that a actual Twitter admin was coerced, whether they were socially engineered or whether they were uh, allegedly paid to give access to the hackers to get to the admin mm. tools that you can then get behind these particular accounts and adjust. Right. Oh, so it may be more than just an electronic hack. It may just be like an old fashioned, you know, let's get somebody on the inside type thing. Yeah, it's not the first time. I mean, Twitter got caught out on this before where there were some Twitter employees that were recruited by uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to actually do some spying on certain user accounts. But there's quite this underground market of, you know, what we call SIM swaps as well, 
where individuals will steal or hack or hijack someone's account, whether it be Twitter or Instagram, they will then sell that account uh, in the underground market uh, for quite a lot of money. And uh, in some ways, it's quite easy to do, Mike. Yes. Well, that's t- and that's the bad news, isn't it? Because Jack Dorsey says, tough day for us at Twitter. We all feel terrible this has happened. Well, that's great. I'm very happy that he feels terrible. Um, but I think if I'm a Twitter user as I am, I'd feel better about his explanation as to how he's going to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, no, absolutely. They they need to have certain controls in place. I mean, this is something that we, is not new. It has been going on for some time. But I mean, certainly for any of the listeners uh, that are listening to the show today, there are a couple of things that they can do to try and secure their account. Because, you know, we look at two-factor authentication, which is where you put in your mobile phone number. And obviously, if someone logs into your account from an unknown device, then it will send you a code, an SMS, for you to input that code to obviously verify it. The problem is, is SIM swaps. And, and you know, this is a, an old technique where what I would do, Mike, is I could take your number, your mobile number, I call up the network, I give a little bit of information which I might be able to glean either on the internet or so, or, or certainly on social media, mm. which then convinces the network uh, because it, it SIM swaps. So there are probably about 30,000 SIM swaps done a day here in the UK for innocent reasons. People dropping their phone in the loo or potentially losing it. You go in, get another SIM, mm. you give the serial number to the network, they then move and port your entire network, you know, your, 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 your phone number onto that new SIM. Now, the problem is if someone does that maliciously, you're then in big trouble. So you've got to keep those recovery codes when you set up that 2FA. That's really important. Okay. But also what you can do is use a voice over IP telephone number as that two-factor authentication measure. And as far as these people are concerned who organise this, um, will it be easy to track who they are or will they still be disappearing off with whatever is $100,000 in, in Bitcoin? And will they still have information that they haven't yet accessed and exploited, if you like? Well, I, I think it's probably unlikely they will get away. Uh, Bitcoin isn't quite as anonymous as it used to be. There are tools that are being used, I know, by uh, certainly law enforcement agencies, which will actually track Bitcoin origination and will actually work through the blockchain to find out who the person or the recipient actually is. Depends on how sophisticated it is. I don't think it has been that sophisticated. But there's also the question of if there was a Twitter employee allegedly involved, recruited, paid or incentivized in some measure to actually gain access or give access to that portal for the hackers, then no doubt law enforcement is going to be involved because there are some big old names that were obviously involved in this. Yeah, some of the big names presumably will have um, individual sort of security people working as we speak on making their own social media more secure because if you are Kanye West and you are Barack Obama, you don't necessarily want people somehow delving through your DMs, do you? No, I mean, there, there are some things that the individual can do, I mean, of which I've, I've mentioned a couple, but there are some really simple things. I may put up a post later on Twitter just with a, a couple of quick guidelines that anybody can potentially put into place to make it less easy for anybody to hijack your account because there are marketplaces. There's a place called OG Users. Um, you know, if the listeners uh, put that into Google, you'll see it's a marketplace where people are selling Instagram accounts or Twitter accounts, uh, and there are many like it. Um, and just using your mobile phone number uh, is a risky option. You know, we always have to up our game because the hackers are getting smarter all the time. Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, I was given a very interesting piece of information the other day, which I don't know uh, whether it's even true or not. Um, but I was told this. Now, you may have seen this going around and it might actually be a hack itself. 
But if you put in a certain uh, collection of stars and asterisks and a number into your keypad on your phone, you can check whether or not you're under surveillance by the police. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this one. I don't want to give it out in case it is, in fact, some kind of dodgy thing. Um, uh, but I actually put it onto my phone and it said everything was disabled, which meant that was a good thing. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would necessarily buy that. There are, there are various codes you can put in. I mean, for example, the most common one that people will use is to extend the ring time of their phone. Right. And if you go onto Google and again, put that in, and there's a series of asterisks uh, and numbers and then putting in 30, uh, 30, because 30 seconds is the longest your phone will ring for. Yeah, that's very convenient. Um, for your phone to be monitored by law enforcement, again, without giving too many secrets away, Mike, um, that would be unlikely to be done actually at the source end, i.e. the phone end. It's right. more likely to be sanctioned through the networks. And having worked with a number of the networks over the years, I know they have to go through a lot of hoop jumping before the authorities can have the permissions to be able to do any kind of tracking on your phone. You, you yourself on your own phone could be giving up an awful lot of information yourself anyway. Yes. Well, I think that's part of the thing when people talked about the track and trace apps and the worries that they might have if if people were sort of working out where you were going, what you were doing. And I've always said, you know, Google um, and, and Facebook and, and uh, you know, Apple know a far deal more uh, about what we're doing probably than any government organisation. Oh, yeah, without question, Mike. Uh, I mean, you only have to go into your phone. I mean, for Apple, for example, if you're on an Apple phone, um, is to go into your general settings, go into privacy, go into location services, keep scrolling along and you'll find that it will even record uh, your most identifiable locations, locations that you go to all the time. And you'll see a whole list of, you know, whether it be home, work, your partner's home, all sorts of information, which uh, you'll be probably terrified to, to discover is being <laughs> held on your phone. Yes, I'm sure. Absolutely right. Will, listen, thank you very much indeed. Great to talk to you. See you soon. Will Geddes there, uh, who is, of course, security expert, author of Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online. Uh, always worth looking at uh, uh, with repeated use because, of course, your kids will be discovering new things online all the time. And you need to be very much staying on top of all of that. 
Let's say a very good morning to Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South, because Matt, amongst other things that he wants to do, uh, he wants to try and see whether Pretty Patel can do something about the sort of rising uh, take-up of people who are taking, intaking this nitrous oxide. It's a sort of euphoria, apparently, which is produced uh, like many other drugs that people take. But this has now become the second most popular recreational drug uh, after cannabis. And I think uh, everyone would recognise those little silver kind of... Um, capsules that you see lying uh, on the streets. Matt, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Now, this has become a real problem, hasn't it? I mean, I remember when I used to first see these things on the streets of London, and I never really knew what they were. Um, and then there'd been those, uh, they call it hippie crack in some sectors of, uh, of the media. And I saw uh, a lot of footballers seemingly taking them at parties, and, and it's become very much a thing, hasn't it? Yeah, I think I think the alarming thing about it is, so my, my uh, major introduction to it has been out on the litter pick uh, litter pick front of it out and then the thing is you didn't see them in anything like the scale that you're seeing them right. two years ago three years ago now they are everywhere they're in every green space every park every 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 bit of green space that we've got every beautiful green space we've got is now covered in these things on a on a saturday morning a sunday morning um, and that means there are huge amounts more people consuming it and actually it's 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 insanely dangerous um you've got people for the the 22nd high or whatever they get out of the damping actually there can be disabled for life uh, or, or work, they lose their life as yeah. a consequence um, and I, th- I think it's there's several aspects to it because I don't think the public are actually that aware of the consequences. Well, to be I honest, yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming as a, as a parent, apart from anything else, that I've, I'm relatively aware of the dangers of cannabis. You know, we talk to our children all the time about that. But what we don't talk to them about is this stuff, which I don't even know. I mean, you know, I've got 15 year old son. For all I know, uh, he's got people at school handing this stuff around. I think I think also the thing with it is it's these canisters and balloons and it all sounds a little bit different to yeah. cocaine and these serious things to some people, but it no laughing matter. That's what we're christening the campaign. Um, the, these things are everywhere. There's a growing number of young people taking them. We've got to do something about them because whatever law is in place, whatever enforcement is in place, it's clearly not working yeah. or we wouldn't have these huge growing numbers of people doing it. I think it's about joining the dots. It's about the, the legislative base and the what the what the results are if you do it. It's about the enforcement and how we tackle it and make sure that the police consider it a priority. And also it's about educating people. It's about making sure that parents know that these balloons and little canisters are actually really serious stuff. Mm. Uh, and, and and public awareness is a big deal. It's about sharing the horror stories um, of, of people who've, who really regret the 20 seconds of fun that they might have had because of the huge consequences that are going on a lifetime. Um, it's about getting that message home. And it's also about the fact that you can click on Amazon. You or I could flick up a window now and order this stuff off right. the internet, just like that. Well, um, well this, is, yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you about, because supposedly supplying nitrous oxide for recreational use has been outlawed since 2016, but it is frequently sold and purchased uh, under the guise of cream charges, you know, sort of whipped cream that you, pre- you put on cakes yeah. and stuff like that. So is that what they're buying? Are they buying these sort of devices that have it inside and then somehow taking it out? Yeah, there's got to be some way in which we can can we've got to legislate or find a way in which we can we can control what people are buying it for. Um, what might be very it might create some very great uh, uh, whipped cream, uh, sort some fantastic meringues, but actually deadly consequences when when it gets in the wrong hands, and we've got to do something about it. Yes, and I mean well, I, I'm, I'm struggling to see what you can do about that because I suppose you can't outlaw the sale of whipped cream, can you? So I mean, presumably you'll have to be. Uh, I don't know, you'll have to be talking to the manufacturers of these spray cans or whatever to make it more difficult somehow to remove the nitrous oxide part. I think that's where it's about. It's about the fact that you can just 
flog it over the you, you know you hook into your online i'm allowed to say amazon and things whatever it is you can hook in online just order the damn thing actually we clearly cannot use that platform to sell it or we have to find a way that we can manage who we're selling it to right. and what we're selling it for um these things for some reason i don't imagine there was that many of them getting sold a couple of years ago but i imagine we still had the whipped cream so i think there must be some way in which we can we can look at that find out who we're selling it to control the sale of it uh in, in a sensible manner that still lets it get to the people who are going to use it properly. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, as far as the uh, the stories of horror that, that you, you talk about, I mean, I don't see very many of those. So so what plans have you got to try and kind of make that uh, message better uh, got across, as it were? You know, yeah. how, can, how, can, how can we help with that? So I think it, it is about you get on there and have a little Google and you will find some real horror stories of people who have been left uh, disabled, that it's severely disabled for life, or lost their lives as a result of playing with this stuff. Um, and it, it, also, it, it doesn't seem as serious as it is when you see the little canister and the balloon flopping around on the park. Actually, hugely dangerous. Um, and I think it's about us sharing the examples, get Googling. Um, I asked the Justice Secretary about what we can do with the electorate. And I think it's, it's a joined up approach. We need to start talking about it at councils. We need to start talking about it with police forces. And parents need to know what the consequences are. And in fact, young people need to know what the consequences are. There needs to be some education element to it that this little thing that you, you might have a go at because your mate did it last week and he were all right. Actually, you might not be. And that 20 seconds might have a lifetime, mm. lifelong consequences. I mean, we do seem to be already sort of fighting a losing battle against several other drugs. You know, marijuana yeah. is pretty much available in every place that you go in this country. People say that it's easier to get uh, cocaine delivered than a pizza in some parts of the country. You know, I mean, it's not as if you've got a great deal of, uh, of police that you can go to and say, can you not just do with this what you did with these other drugs? Because we seem yeah. to be losing on all fronts here. I think to some extent you're, you're right. But the other thing is about the prevalence of it and the fact it's appeared from nowhere and it's everywhere. Um, and I think some of the young kids who turn up with their, you know, their, their, Red Bull or whatever the well, I'm sure they might not be just be drinking Red Bull with their white light or whatever at the park. Actually, they won't be doing some of those other substances. But mm. this thing is readily available. It's too easy to get your hands on, um, and and we need to change that before it becomes even bigger. Sure. And Simon Clark, your colleague uh, in the Houses of Parliament, is looking to get Pretty Patel involved in this. What what are you hoping yeah. she can do? Well, I think I think it's about pushing it up the raising awareness and pushing the issue up the agenda uh, on every front, because it will be a joined up approach. It's about how we regulate sales. It's about the consequences for people who sell it. It's about what the police are doing to to tackle it uh, and, and where it falls in their set of priorities. So I think it's actually joined up and we need to look at all departments uh, across government and push the message that it's a big issue and we need to get a grip of it and we need to get a grip of it fast. Yes. And what is the sort of, um, uh, I suppose, the, the, the attraction of it? I mean, I know that's probably a, sounds like a pretty stupid question, you know, because parents ask that question all the time with their kids, you know, why did you do it? Um, but if there's a lot of peer pressure and it is a, something which is apparently being done by lots of people, it can lead these kids into a full sense of security and, and there'll be younger and younger kids doing it, presumably. I think I think that is the case. And I think because it's so readily available, that, that doesn't help. Um, it's about the, this 20-second euphoria and a bit of a high that, yeah. do you know what, the other kids did it, so why don't I? Actually, we need to break that and we need them to, when they, when they make that decision, when they look at this substance, that they realise what the consequences can be. They need to speak to, well, they need to see the, the stories of some of the individuals who've, who've, who've had their lives torn apart by it or lost their lives mm. as a result. Um, and only by doing that, only by educating people, informing them of the consequences, can we actually make the difference and make those people make informed choices. 
Sure. A couple of quick questions for you on other matters. Um, story yep. this morning in the papers about moving the Houses of Parliament up to York. It'd be a, lot, a shorter commute for you from Stockton on Tees. What do you make of that? It certainly will be. And York is a very, very nice place. Have you spent much time in York, Mike? I've been to York. I've been to the Royal Museum there. Uh, I've spent some time in a, a, a couple of the environs of York. It's a lovely part of the world. There's some fantastic eateries. There's some fantastic tourist destinations. I think isn't there more pubs per square mile in York than anywhere else? I'll tell you word for country. it. Yeah, so York, York is probably ideally place to take the House of Parliament. But it would be a bit um, of a waste and, of money, wouldn't it, though, to take everybody up there, not just the MPs, but all of the staff, the people from, you know, uh, the catering department, you know, the House of Law. I mean, everything. It would be just for a temporary measure. It seems to me that we could spend the money a bit better. I think there are probably huge consequences to that. But whatever you're doing down here to the House of Parliament is going to cost huge sums of money. Um, and I think it probably takes, uh, you know, a, a sensible approach looking at what those costs are, looking at what the costs are to accommodate you down here. Because I'm pretty sure you could get a building uh, in the north of England uh, renting this space like this significantly cheaper than you can down here. Yes. Um, in fact, if you look at the rent on my flat up north and you look at the rent on a flat down here, there's the, you've got to bear all that in mind, I think. Look at it and make a sensible, uh, cost-effective decision. Okay. And well, it's also much more central to the UK. So, yeah, well, that's if you're true. going anywhere, we should go to York. Okay, all right. So I'll put you down as a as a yes for that one. Um, second story, of course, the Shemima Bagan story that's just broken. Um, she's been told by the Court of Appeal judges that she can, in fact, now return to this country to challenge the removal of her British citizenship. Obviously, this is one for Pretty Patel. The Home Office have said that they're going to appeal it, probably, um, but I think the bulk of the people in this country would not welcome the return of Shemima Begum. Yeah, I think it's hugely concerning. I think the public will be rightly uh, unhappy. Um, and I think it's right that the Home Office are going to push it uh, to appeal. And, and, and I mean, there is a balance. There is a balance in that courts make informed decisions. They get all the facts before them. And politicians shouldn't interfere with that. But we should also make sure that the courts give it the appropriate uh, attention. Um, and we'd like to see them make the right decision when we appeal. Absolutely right, Matt. Thanks very much indeed. Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South on the crusade. Uh, and if you know anything about this, we'd love to hear your stories because you might know uh, of children, uh, of teenagers, of young people who have got caught up uh, in this mad nitrous oxide craze. People uh, who have had their lives ruined, people who have uh, seen terrible, terrible things happening to their kids uh, or their friends uh, or their loved ones as a result of the ease with which you can gain access to some of this stuff. And yes, it is as uh, complicated a story as any of the stories about illegal drugs. However, um, I think Matt Vickers makes a good point. Because it is so easy to get your hands on this stuff, it's not as difficult as having to go and find an illegal drug dealer. You don't have to go into some dark, horrible part of the town uh, to get somebody to sell you something under the counter. You can actually order it on the internet. And I think that's something uh, that does need to be addressed. But we'll take your calls on that. 0344 is the number. You can tweet us, of course, as well, uh, at Talk Radio, at IROMG. We'll also take your calls on a great many things. Things. We've been talking about the vaccine this morning for coronavirus. We've been talking about moving Parliament to York. We'll talk about Shemima Begum as well. Don't forget, we are live streaming on YouTube. Uh, so get on that now and join the uh, ever-gathering throng of people who watch us as well as listening to us. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Now, it might uh, come as no surprise to you that the BBC is under a great deal of scrutiny at the moment, not least because of the bias that some of their political programming seems to uh, uh, include, especially Newsnight, especially Emily Maitlis, especially some of the stuff that goes out uh, on the BBC News Channel. One of the people who I think you can be pretty sure uh, is about as unbiased as they come is Andrew Neil, a man who, uh, regardless of what you may think of him, treats everybody the same. He basically takes the approach that all politicians have got something to hide. I work for Andrew Neil when he was editor of the Sunday Times. He was a fantastic newspaper editor. He's a fantastic broadcaster. Why on earth would the BBC seek uh, to humiliate him by cancelling his show? Let's talk to Paul Conyu, uh, former newspaper editor himself, columnist for the New European. Paul, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Seems an extraordinary decision, this, doesn't it? Well, I can I can do no better than quote the words of the BBC's own media editor and also a former national newspaper editor himself, Amal Rajan, mm. uh, you know, on the BBC website where he said, um, uh, in one particular style, forensic, unrelenting scrutiny and, 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 and interrogation of those in power, Andrew Neil is the best in the business. <laughs> I think it says it all, really. Well, it does. So, uh, considering he is the best in the business, considering he has a show called The Andrew Neil Show, why would you mess with it? I find it, I find it quite extraordinary. I gather there are talks going on about other shows and possibly him spearheading the BBC's coverage of the... Uh, of the U.S. presidential election, for example, but right. I don't think, but I don't think that there will be a shortage of offers from elsewhere. Perhaps even Times Radio, dare I whisper it, but but also CNN, for example. Well, you might know, get off from the... talk radio before he gets one from there. <laughs> but I've got very loyal, Mike. Thank but you. In, you know, but it, but it would, um, you know, but it, it does seem a very strange, a very strange decision and a big loss. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, it, it, for example, quite apart from the Andrew Neil show, I, I've. I've I've been saddened and missed his presence on Politics Live, which mm. became politics deprived in a way. You yes. know, without you know without him, I mean Joe Coburn's very good, but but when she and Andrew Neil. We're a, we're a team, I thought it was particularly impressive and powerful. Yes, I think so. And I think there's no question that the new BBC, which is very different from the old BBC that you and I kind of grew up with, which was really very forensic and was really very fair. And it, you know, you can't describe it as that now. Um, there's a lot of rubbish on there. There's a lot of political kind of um, posturing. I don't think Andrew Neil sits very well with the current sort of hierarchy at the BBC. And as, as shown by the fact that they've just appointed a new director general, Who's only ever works at the BBC? Yeah, yeah well, that that that, that, is, that is true. In, in fact, I de- I'm not as in, I'm not as convinced as, as you are, Mike, that this is to do with uh, a political issue um, in the sense of Andrew Neil being too forensic or whatever. I think it's I think it's primarily about the BBC's cost cutting, and I am. And I imagine I don't know who I know Andrew, but I don't know well enough to ask him what you know what is what his pay packet is. But I suspect that in fact, uh, you know, it's it's pretty large. In fact, for you know, well, he never appears. He, he never appears on the top rate of of, of those lists of the numbers of uh, uh, BBC employees who are paid lots and lots of money. I mean, he's nowhere near. Yes, he, I mean, they could have saved a lot more money by getting rid of Gary Lineker. Well, yeah, that's that is true. I mean, I, I actually quite, I actually rather like Gary, but at the same time, I think Andrew Neil is a, is an important factor in you know it, not just in the BBC, but in the whole political landscape of the country right. and and the BBC being a platform not for his opinions, but but for the way that he he forensically challenges politicians, you know, 
on all sides, and uh, and we saw it with Boris Boris Johnson running scared of, of facing him during the during the election campaign, and I'm sure wouldn't have got anywhere near Andrew Neil during the pandemic crisis either. No, exactly right. And the point about surely saving money, the BBC though, it's a bit of a sort of uh, you know a ridiculous idea to say that the the only you know having looked around, the only thing they could see that they could cut money from uh, is a show called the Andrew Neil Show. It just doesn't well, work yeah, with me. It goes deeper than that, though, Mike. In fact, I mean, for me, a disproportionate amount of the BBC savings are, are coming out of out of the news division, mm. and also, and also, I think alarmingly, out of local radio radio stations, which which, with with, with the sad demise, you know, of so many um, regional news and local newspaper titles, I think it just adds. To the news deprivation crisis, facing you know facing uh, facing us as a country. Yeah, but a lot of local newspaper titles, and... but a lot of news, local newspaper titles are no more because of the BBC's local news output. And I'm afraid they've killed the golden well, that's, goose, that's true to, that's which, true to an extent, which has Mike, now killed them. True. They've now killed themselves. But yes, that's true to an extent, Mike. But 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 it's far far more than the BBC. It's down. It's down. It's down to the impact of social media and and the disappearance of advertising revenue, you know, online. Yes, that's true as well. But the point is, is that, you know, I would be much less concerned about the closure of BBC Shropshire, for example, than I would be about the axing of Andrew Neil. You know, Shropshire and well, uh, Sussex. Well, so, well, well, and, so, well, so would I, Mike. Apart from the fact I don't live in, I don't live in Shropshire. If you live in Shropshire, you might have a slightly different. Well, you might, but actually, I've always been very firmly of the belief, having run a commercial radio station for speech outside of London in Edinburgh, it was impossible for us to ever get anything uh, remotely like a commercial success because of BBC Scotland. BBC Scotland is an all-empowering, overarching, you know, state-run institution practically, which makes it all but impossible for any commercial operator to do anything that would come anywhere close to making any kind of commercial success and i think that's wrong well i take i, I take i take your point mike but i think you know but i think i mean I, i'm the author of three books or co a co-author of three books this year looking partly at the, at the media in 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 the crisis uh, around Pan, the pandemic and and, and and other economic issues, and mm. I think that, um, and I think we're suffering in all in all directions. There there is a crisis in news conveyance on 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 every, on every yeah. level. But the point is, everybody but the BBC is suffering. The only reason the BBC is having to cut their uh, cloth is because they're under pressure politically oh. from the oh. government. But basically, I mean, you, when you see the Guardians losing 180 people, you've seen Reach getting rid of 550 people, you know, you've got all That's sorts right. of commercial news organisations who are having to lose people and make people redundant. The BBC is still able to charge everybody the licence fee so that they are not actually suffering as a result of a loss of revenue. But spare a thought for the 520 journalists who are going at the B- at the BBC too. It's not, you know, it's it, it's it's everywhere. There is there, there is a crisis for for anybody, you know, in journalism at the moment, and that and that and that also begets a crisis in the public interest, a crisis in in, in the way the public are informed, and I think and I think that's 
that should scare us all, whether whether you, you're on the left, the, the centre or the right wing of, of political life. There's not an awful lot of places left for people to go if you happen to be not on the left, though. I mean, talk radio is one of the very few places you can come and hear the unvarnished truth, for heaven's sake, Paul, as you well know, which is why you like coming on here, because we will take all uh, and every single... Well, I appear um, on the BBC too, though, Mike. So in well, fact, I know you do, so but, you, but you don't. if you're a right wing, if you're Peter Hitchens, you don't get on the BBC as often as you can get on talk radio. And if you, you're not considered to be right wing, Paul, but you know, if you are considered to be right wing, you do not get given a fair hearing on any show on the BBC, aside from probably Andrew Neil's show. Uh, don't don't totally agree there. I I mean, I think, I think, you know, question time does a fairly, you know, his panels of question time is awful now. And if you're a Tory, you get interrupted every two minutes. Well, I mean, Andrew, well, I take your earlier point. I I, I mean, Andrew Neil probably should have been the best man the best man yes. for, question, I agree. for question time, you know, sort of... Um, but that was another politically correct decision because somebody at the BBC obviously made uh, the decision early on that it shouldn't be a man, that it should be a woman. I think, I think that's true, and I think, and I think, I think there's, there's an argument for that, but also an argument you know, against it. But if you were looking purely at the quality, the quality um, of political presentation, then Andrew Neil, you know, is... Is the, is the man and Andrew yeah. Neil? I mean, he's, he's a, funny enough though. If you, if you look at social media in the last couple of days, I mean, Andrew Neil is being attacked unfairly by the left and by the right. right. In fact, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary. But um, but that, but that is to his credit. In fact, you well, know, I think so. Of, I mean, I personally, as I said, worked for Andrew when he was editor of the Sunday Times, and I was working in New York, and he was a fantastic editor to work for. Very clear in what he wanted to do. Uh, very easy to uh, to get along with, and a man with some great ideas and a great sort of flair for for newspapers. But he's also managed to bring that now to broadcasting. Um, And I thought he actually slightly overstepped the mark. You may disagree with me when he did that sort of piece to camera when Boris Johnson refused to be interviewed. Well, I totally applauded him for that. Yeah, I know. I thought that was a little bit on the pompous side, which is not to say that he shouldn't have done it. But the point is, is that, you know, he's he's earned that reputation and he's earned the right to do that. But it... But it, in a sense, Andrew Neil, I think, was right to do that. And, and what's happened since with Boris Johnson, you know, probably with his strings pulled by Dominic Cummings, evading scrutiny at every opportunity, uh, unless it's on terms that, that, that suit him, I, I think I think we, we have a crisis there. And I think and I think Andrew Andrew Neil was right in calling out Boris Johnson. A man who who's avoided Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain, avoided Channel Four News, and prefers you know something like This Morning mm. and uh, and a, the soft soap sofa approach. And well, that, he went on that, Times Radio, didn't he? Well, that's well, that's well, that's true. But it but it what but it was something I think he did because it was uh, it suited him. Um, and it's but that's, well, that's also, I mean, that's also his his prerogative as well, isn't it? I think I think the prime minister. I mean, he can't he can't he can't obviously honour every interview request. But I but I think the, we have a prime minister who is rather rather evasive and resentful of scrutiny. I mean, his facial expressions during prime minister's question time, are, you know, are, are very revealing. It's as if. As if how dares anybody challenge me? It's a very. It's a, I think he's just. I think he's just bored with all Sir Keir Starmer's very boring questions. But I mean, if you were if you were advising Boris Johnson, you wouldn't say, "Here's a great idea. Why don't you go on Good Morning Britain with Piers Morgan?" Because you know it's just going to turn into a shouting match, and that's not doing anybody a great service either. 
I can, I can, I take, I, I part, I partly agree, I partly agree with that. But he, you know, but uh, uh, if he can't hold his own, you know, which, which, I, which I would find rather surprising. But I mean, but at the moment, of course, we, you know, I'm waiting to, 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 to for somebody to get anywhere near Boris Johnson and hear his views about the Julian Lewis fiasco, for example. In fact, you know, uh, the, the, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. I do not enjoy scrutiny, which is one reason getting back to our... Well, I think that's a bit unfair. I mean, Dominic Cummings... Hang on, Dominic Cummings... I mean, Dominic Cummings sat in a garden uh, with the full uh, thrust of the broadcast media and Fleet Street asking him questions for over an hour about his trip up to, um, um, you know, that castle that I couldn't remember the name of up until uh, Barnard Castle, there you go, um, which I never heard of before he went there. You know, but he, yeah, st- he sat there under under a very high level of scrutiny. He didn't have to do that. Uh, he didn't have much choice in the end because the pressure was so... Yeah, great. all right. Well, if you... you, can, even, you I'll, I'll let you get away with that, but that doesn't, even, that doesn't mean Boris, that... Yeah, but you just said he doesn't Boris like Johnson, scrutiny. I think that for once actually exerted a little bit of authority over the man who too often exerts authority over him and said, Dominic, you've, you've got to do it. And, of course, we... Yeah, but you can't say that we're in the same breath that he doesn't like scrutiny. Free advert, you know, advert for... Um, you know, for opticians in there as well, didn't we? In fact, you know. Yeah, but what I'm uh, saying, Paul, is you can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, say, "Oh, he doesn't like scrutiny," and then say, "Oh, yeah, well, he did have some scrutiny then, but he was forced to do it." You have to occasionally give a little bit of credit and say, "Well, he didn't have to actually. He could have just carried on regardless without having to answer anything." But I thought he was. I thought he was very open, very honest, and and he and he put himself uh, very much in the spotlight. Well, 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 I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about honest, Mike. In fact, you know, sort of. Um, uh, I think the eyesight saga was in fact beyond satire. In well, fact. you, you I mean, say that, but it didn't. You know, it, nobody was able to prove otherwise, were they? Well, how do, how do you prove with a? Well, I think I think the logic of any. I think I think any, I think any medical expert would say that if you if you bother about your eyesight, you don't make a sixty mile round round trip to a local beauty spot on your wife's. Birthday. Well, you don't know that. I mean, you know, there are any. And well, I'm not going to rehearse think, all of the I same arguments. Common, no, but you don't. You know, but hang on, Paul. You can't well just because you disagree with somebody politically. It doesn't mean everything they say is wrong or that everything they say is a lie. And the trouble with the left in this country, the trouble with the media in this country, of which you're a part, uh, is that you pick people apart for things which the rest of the country don't actually care about. Most of the people who voted Boris Johnson in quite like Boris Johnson. Most of the people who uh, support the Tory party quite like Dominic Cummings being there. And so, you know, the relentless attacks on both of them really don't work. I think I think I think you're misreading the public mood of uh, over Dominic Cummings, and also the root that the mood on much of the Tory backbenches, not not least in some of the red wall seats that you know that the Tory party captured. I think Dominic Cummings is has become a liability and and overmighty, and we have a prime minister with a scant attention to detail who relies on him too much. Well, you say that, but there's literally no evidence for any of that at all, whatsoever. But listen, Paul, we've got to run because I'm getting told we're getting too late for the news coming up and we've got to talk to LaDonna Harvey in California. Thanks very much indeed. Paul Conyu, columnist for New European, started off saying that uh, he agreed with me about Andrew Neil uh, and then ended up attacking Boris Johnson. But hey, that's the way we go here at Talk Radio because we take all views on board. Uh, as I said, we are one of the few places in the media uh, where you can actually hear different opinions rather than the ones that you hear everywhere else. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 
on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.